0: I Gormley. on Shin, says <laughs> Shomra Tonight on Arena, director Louise Lowe on transforming the Peacock Theatre into a Turkish bath, and Jim Lockhart and Kira King on the documentary From Jukebox to TikTok. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Fans of Louise Lowe and Anu Productions will not be surprised to hear that Anu are turning the Peacock Theatre, that's downstairs at the Abbey, of course, into a Turkish baths, and this for their new show, which is called Hammam. Nor will fans be surprised to hear that they have good historical reasons for doing so. The Hammam Hotel and Turkish Baths opened on Upper Sackville Street, now of course O'Connell Street, in 1869. It was a key site for the Battle of Dublin during the Civil War, an event which culminated in the death of Brewer. the destruction of the hotel and much else besides. Delighted to be joined on the programme this evening by writer and director, Louise Lowe, and set designer, Owen Boss. And I'll come to you first on on this one, uh, Louise. A new theatre company, you really love this idea of mixing the past up with the present. Has the decade of centenaries provided you with lots of brilliant materials in, in that respect?
1: Yeah, I was looking at something yesterday, I think it was Dorothy Parker said, What is Irish dramatists and Irish artists going to do when um, they would get freedom? I was (laughs) laughing at what that was, because it's actually given us the material to make 22 different projects in this cycle of work. Now, as a company, we like to make cycles of work anyway. Mm. But this one has been over the last decade. I thought we were going to do 21 projects and we have ended up doing 22. So we... uh,
0: have you, any sense, have you any sense of overview or is it too soon to get a, that kind of feeling off that body of work, Louise?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, this one links right back to the beginning, which is quite strange in terms of place and space. And the first one that we did was the lockout, living the lockout. Mm. And there's there's moments in that that you can hear echoes of. And this one, um, both in terms of character and in terms of story. So it's kind of mad to come back at it, you know, 10 years later of our lives. We're 10 years older, but actually thinking about what... What that tells for mm. people, I think, in terms of overview, the thing that's striking me most, and it's a it's a quote that we have literally with the with the script, was that there's that so many people are often silenced or unheard throughout the stories that we know, and there's been such you know such a such a tra- time of revisionism for history and learning more about ourselves, and I think the thing that stands for us is the thing that stood at the beginning, which is who are we and why are we now, and that's the thing that's mm. propelled us through. The last decade of work, but it's been it's been an extraordinary journey for these twenty-two shows and and I think we're really proud of and it's brilliant to end with this one because it's epic in scale and size and emotion. So it's it's fascinating.
0: Well let's let's give the the, the setting here is that the play is called Hammam. Uh the setting here is a Turkish bath. Uh but you might explain what the, what the Hammam Hotel were, were and what the Hammam Hotel was back 100 years ago and its role in what was the Battle of Dublin, which will involve telling us a little bit about that battle as well.
1: Yeah. So the Civil War in Ireland obviously began in, you know, 1922. And there was a couple of projects that we have as part of the Civil War. One was the Wake Fires, which was Cork Midsummer Festival last year, and the hammam. So hammam came about when we were making Wake Fires. And Brenda Malone from the National Museum came in with a tiny little finger bowl. And she said, this is all that remains of the hammam." And to that point, I hadn't really known much about what it was and where it was and why it was. So the Battle of Dublin took place between the 29th of June and 5th of July. And we started looking at who who was in that final battle. So on the retreat from the Four Courts, a lot of people made that, you know, a lot of people who were anti-treaty side started to take over buildings around the city. Um, a number of different buildings, including Barry's Hotel, uh, Moran's Hotel and Talbot Street, uh, Fannigan's Undertakers in, uh, beside York Street. And there was a lot of different buildings taken over by anti-treaty, um, kind of rebels. Mm. And the whole idea was that they would wait for supporters to join them from around the country and together their, their their overriding hope I think was that they were going to bring the wrath of the British military back on them all so that they would all reunite and turn back on them. So I think command for us was a hotel that was on a block of hotels really from the corner of what is now Cahill Brewer Street all the way down to where Burger King is and that was the stronghold and the HQ really for the last of yeah. that battle. Um, so the Hammam is the Hammam Hotel which is kind of nestled in between where the Gresham was and there was a hotel called the Crown and the Granville and then it was around the corner that Cahill Brewer obviously left at the back of the Hammam um, to the lane and uh, was was shot and that's that kind of what was most famous yeah. for but I suppose for us it was about looking at the 34 women who insisted against dev's instructions that they remain that they don't remain inside the burning yeah. turkish hammam in the final hours of that battle and cathy barry was one of those women kevin barry's sister and she wrote about it uh, afterwards and said your attitude with regard to the hammam is based really on a wrong impression this is to her disapproving for each her husband she said first of all the men didn't allow us to stay we just stayed and that really pushed us through trying to think about who these women might be and who these people were in that final battle of Dublin. So it's um, it's amazing that all that remains of that luxurious hammam that was in O'Connell Street is the finger bowl that currently resides in the National yeah. Museum. But embracing then the absence of the building, we have occupied the peacock and the basements of the abbey to reconstruct those hotels leading into the hammam. So it's kind of dreamlike and hypnagogic and audiences will traverse through the bells of those destroyed buildings. Um, this like a, like this is yeah. an epicenter or hot spot acting as a conduit for audiences to purge one of the most contentious elements i think of the civil war and i would Hazard by saying it's also an enduring legacy now
0: into the present. Yeah, and I suppose that, that what you've done really with the with the bowels of the Peacock Theatre is recreate that, as you say, that that scene and that, those buildings as they were uh, back one hundred years ago. And that's obviously time for us to speak to Owen Boss about doing just that. Owen, as the set designer, yeah. you you had quite a job here in terms of Turkish bats. How prevalent were they? How you or how were there many in Dublin a hundred years ago? There seemed to be
2: quite a few, like there was one over in Bride Street and then there's one mentioned in Ulysses in the Lotus Eaters episode, Chapter 5, uh, which was up around kind of Westmoreland Street and then I know there was one out in Bray as well, so they're quite common and used quite often. Um, so yeah, we went into the, the Irish Architectural Archives to, to have a look at the because they hold the insurance records for the hammam that was destroyed on O'Connell Street. And that lists everything that's in the uh, all the fixtures and fittings that were in the hotel and that was in the Turkish bath. So we went in there to get uh, an exact kind of replica of, of what was lost. Now, there was no photographs mm. of the actual uh, hammam that I could find, but uh, those records gave us quite a lot. So working with uh, the co-designer Marie Cairns, we started to kind of dream up what that a Turkish bath could be and what it could look like and then what that could kind of give to to Louise and the cast and uh, as a route through the peacock and where that kind of fits in how we'd fit that into kind of the peacock and something that we talked about quite early on was that anybody familiar with the peacock we wanted them to come in and almost have their world turned upside down that they don't know where they are or they don't can't kind of recognise what it is Mm. and I think we've I think we've achieved because we've we've achieved that because we've had a number of kind of Abbey staff come in to to have a look and have a a look around uh, just before we start rehearsals and stuff and they've kind of been amazed and they can't Understand where parts of the building are, and <laughs> and that you know. So it's really my favorite one was yeah. uh, one of the cleaners came down to, to look for uh, bin bags, and she didn't know where she was, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had to guide her through to the foyer. So that's I there think you well, there you go. that was a measure of success.
0: Yeah, I think. mission accomplished. It sounds like uh, for sure in that case. And as is typical with Anu Productions, Louise, we ha- we're we're not all going to be sitting in one spot watching the same show together. We'll be if we're no. as audience members, we'll be separate. It up and we'll see different things happening in different orders
1: you will um, and, and I think it's true we've managed to create quite a quite a journey I think for audiences to stick with us true and I think it's been one of the most ambitious and one of the most exciting and, and certainly feels like one of the most epic shows we've made actually even though it's not the biggest mm. it feels epic it feels epic in ambition and scale and intention actually intent really so I hope they'll be excited by what we do and what we bring it's it's like a dream. It's like entering a dream. It's probably yeah. the best way to describe it. We'd one staff member came into the day, and one of our performers, Peter, was running lines in a hotel in a hotel room that wasn't normally a hotel room, and she came in expecting a different room, and she's like, "I think i walked into a dream."
0: <laughs> well, there you go again. Like, mission
1: accomplished. There we twice. go. So yeah, the like other thing it literally feels that way.
0: The other thing you mentioned, uh, Louise, was this idea of you know many much of what you've been doing over the decade of, of centenaries is unearthing the stories that haven't been heard before. And one of the big things that I think has really come to the fore in recent, in recent time is the a very important role that women played in yes. that period in Irish history, often yeah. totally ignored. In fact, last week we were speaking on the programme here with Jeremiah Donovan's great-grandson, about a film he has made about his great-grandmother rather than his great-grandfather. Not his grandfather. yeah, Yeah, how she was often ignored as well. But the characters that you have Within this particular telling, uh, you, you mentioned there, Kathy Barry, the the, the sister of the yes. sister of Kevin Barry,
1: um, sister of Kevin Barry, older sister, yeah.
0: And, and you know, and she was she was anti treaty, fair enough. But she she had as yeah. much she had as much to give out about Dev as she had to give out about Collins.
1: She absolutely had, and and she you know she was good friends with Collins. And you look back at her papers, and there's lots of references and diaries to to having these crazy passionate rows with Collins. She was a very articulate and brilliant woman. And she's played here by Ella Lily Highland, who is extraordinary mm. and um, has brought her to life in a, in a very peculiarly... She feels iridescent to me as a character, um, but she plays Cathy Barry. And uh, she. we knew certain people were there. We knew Cathy Barry was there. We knew Maura Comerford was there. We knew Linda Kearns was there and we knew people like Lil Donnell were there. Yeah. And they're quite well known. And I thought that's who we were going to look at. And then as we started to move towards rehearsals, I unearthed a whole file of ICA women who had applied for pensions in the 30s, and um, who were who claimed to have been in the hammam, yeah, and whose references and whose witness statements supported that claim. And there was there was 34 of them, so we kind of think there was probably about 60 women in total inside the hammam during that week, um, and we've we've taken take apart like with have Barry there, but the three of the women that we present here are people who are not so well known. So there's Marie Perles who was um, a local woman, lived in Menchoy Square, and um, whose family changed their name because of their association with her. Uh, Sarah Kirwan, who's in the Pension Records, and Annie Flinter. And Annie is a... Gallia Conroy plays Annie, and she's based it loosely on her aunt, Annie, who was here in the Hammam, oh. and who was part of the Glasgow Trail uh, of women who came in and out so that's yeah. it's been quite the journey of trying to unearth those those female stories and, and let those voices... and watching the fight they had because in the hammam Kathy Barry has a row with Dev um, and they famously held a war council to decide how to get rid of the women towards they felt it was getting too dangerous for them to be here yeah and they tried to throw them out and they came back the next day or hid outside and came back in yeah. the next morning and that's which that was the quote you know first of all the men didn't allow us to stay we just stayed yeah and I, it's the first references I found to him were guns actually fighting,
0: ah, and you. then
1: when Talaburo died, his wife Caitlin said that that she wanted. Um, his uh, his Guard of Honour to be
0: women That is amazing Yeah, the, 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 his, his widow actually Carl Brewer's widow said that yeah. she wanted the Guard of Honour to be women which says a lot about yeah. those who were fighting alongside him uh, in this particular exactly. battle Owen um, coming back to you in terms of the set itself the Hammam Hotel became a kind of a field hospital really at this time did it treat um, the injured on both sides or did it just treat the injured predominantly on the anti-treaty side
2: uh, it was predominantly on the anti treaty side uh, with their own injuries within the building itself, you know. Uh, and, like, the, if you've seen any footage of the actual uh, buildings in that row of 10, uh, that block of 10 buildings, like, the place is absolutely decimated. There's some great footage on the Irish Film Institute's archive, they've gathered all the. Um, They've gathered all the pate footage that was shot at the time, and just some extraordinary kind of scenes, and that, and you can see the the actual destruction, which is really reminiscent of the rising, like from a number of years earlier, and and even the gathering of the anti-Treaty forces within one kind of block, one HQ again, yeah. is really kind of echoes what had happened in sixteen, you know. But yeah, they would have um, they would have predominantly kind of treated the the anti-Treaty side.
0: And and finally then coming to you, Louise, you mentioned there about the, the women from the Irish Citizens Army looking for those uh, pensions. I, yes. I think none of them succeeded, is that right? Not a single one none got a pension? None of them were
1: successful. Not the ones I could find were successful. That, that's not unusual for women applying for at the time.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we know that John Hansey, who was one of the union men who was part of the ICA and who was in the Hammam with them, did help a lot of them fill out, fill out those applications. But you know, there's women like Sarah Kirwan who who, are pleading destitution and, and acute poverty in her pension records. And you can just hear the pain in her body and her voice all the way through those letters, letter after letter for years and years, just saying, please help me. I'm in, I'm in it. You were there. You saw me there. You know what I did. And she had been involved in that kind of revolutionary period all the way through since she was a child from 1913 onwards. So it wasn't that she was just applying for her week in the Hammam. Uh, but, but it kind of for the, all of that journey she'd had throughout that decade. So it feels fitting to give them their last voices in this one and mm. we end the show from the female perspective, for sure, here.
0: Well, uh, given, given the story that you're telling, it seems r- right and fitting that you should do that. Uh, best of luck with uh, previews and with the opening. Thanks for, so much for being with us this evening, Louise Lowe and Owen Boss.
1: Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much.
0: And thanks very much to Louise Lowe and On Boss. Uh, Hamam opens, in fact, on the 23rd of December at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. It's previewing at the moment uh, right through until the 23rd and then it runs through, over the Christmas period, through until the 6th of January and you'll find full details at abbeytheatre.ie. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. From historical crimes to psychological thrillers, spy novels and contemporary State of the Nation Exposes, 2023 was a vintage year for the crime novel. Whether you're on the hunt for a last-minute gift or looking for the perfect crime book with which to curl up in front of the fire over the Christmas period, we have you covered. Joining me this evening is Declan Burke to take us through some of the highlights of of the crime fiction year and you were saying just before we came to air Declan it's been a good year yeah uh, we'll go through the novels but yeah no
3: I think the the vintage year that you suggested in the intro there Sean there is yeah and and not just really good novels but across the whole kind of genre which is Mm. a broad church as you know and
0: yeah a lot of high notes were struck and we're certainly in the the first couple of books we're talking about social commentary as much as we're talking about a crime novel let's start with uh, White Riot from Joe Thomas we're in 1970s London London, uh, uh, punk is at its height. The National Front is at its height. It's it's quite a quite a place to be and quite a setting for a novel.
3: It's it's a volatile time, as you say. 1978 is when it kicks off. Uh, the title will alert people to the fact that the Clash and that kind of music uh, are central to to the the, the themes here. Uh, the, back, the backdrop is immigration. Activism and institutionalised racism and it actually kicks off with the death of Shahid Akhtar whose drowning is designated a death by misadventure by the police even though it happens after closing time near a pub with a big no Asians allowed uh, policy. So the, the, the early stages of the novel are about the rise of the National Front uh, and it's toleration or tacit approval uh, by the metropolitan police, and that forms the core of the story. The main character is a character called D.C. Patrick Noble, who is of Irish parentage, but is a Hollywood case only sort of geezer who's assigned to the Met on the uh, the, the race crime initiative, and he ends up inserting what they were called, what became called, spy cops, into both the National Front and a loose coalition of anti-fascist groups.
0: And when you say <laughs> a Hollywood case only type of guy, is this this means that he. Is only interested in the publicity and in looking well.
3: Yes, the high-profile stuff, the things that are going to get his picture in the paper and so forth. That was, that was his uh, is. His way of, of operating um, but this is low level this is undercover this is very much about running different kind of
0: um, spies into into sim- simultaneously yeah. into both into both camps uh, Thomas here Joe Thomas the author interestingly mixes fact and fiction I'm, I'm always a little bit dubious and a little bit worried about that particular activity
3: how does he manage it? Yeah I think he does very well if I mention the names like David Peace and James Ellroy who have done similarly in the past um, and, and he, he has an extensive kind of bibliogra- bibliography at the end where he quotes all his sources so for example one of the characters in the novel is Margaret Thatcher and all the lines that she uses are taken verbatim from her private correspondence or from the minutes of cabinet meetings and so forth the scenario is fictionalised but the actual dialogue is, mm. is literally done I think it's a terrific blend um, I'm a big fan of Peace and James Elroy as well so if that's the kind of thing you like he also uses their style it's really truncated telegraphic almost which style of which which really increased the urgency
0: and the pace uh, of, of the storytelling. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily call it comic, but certainly a, a kind of a, a, an entertaining aspect to it. It's, it's a very serious topic, um, but particularly D.C. Noble has a very kind of quirky
3: offbeat mm. I suppose it's gallows humour is what you would use yeah. in a situation like that to try and cope um, it's, it's a great blend and it's the first of a proposed trilogy the United Kingdom trilogy I've just finished the second one this afternoon it's terrific so this would be a good time to get on to the yeah. Joe Thomas train. Uh, just
0: briefly does it speak to current tensions? Well I mean that's that's
3: pretty much implicit uh, not just in the UK we might mm. argue it's implicit here uh, in Ireland as well but definitely it's, it's talking about, you know, all historical fiction is to certain, some yeah. certain extent talking about the modern day and this is very much the case here.
0: Alright, well maybe that's the case with the second book. Let me just give the bit name of the book again White Riot and it's by Joel Thomas. The second book a, a, a little bit earlier in terms of period, but a, a not dissimilar um, storyline in, in some ways were in South Boston, Small Mercies, Dennis Lahan, obviously Mystic River we're going to think of, uh, we're going to think a Given Day, I remember reading that fabulous novel, Um where is he? He's in his, he's in, he's in his own <laughs> he, home fictional turf. He has gone back to his
3: hinterland, absolutely. Um, this is South Boston, you say, as you say, which is where Dennis Lehane is from originally and where his, his early novels were, were set. It's 1974 and the backdrop is the federal desegregation of Boston's public schools, which does not go down well in South Boston, which is largely, as you can no. know, uh, Irish-American. Mary Pat Fennessy is the main character. She's a self-described tough Irish broad uh, and, and not a woman to be to be messed with. Um she is not a sympathetic character. She does not cover herself in glory. She's no means, and by no means a liberal when it comes to desegregation and so forth. But the political aspect, her political uh, protests against this desegregation, takes a back seat when her daughter, Jewel, 17 year old daughter, goes missing one night. Now, in South Boston, you don't go to the cops. That's mm-hmm. a cast iron rule. So she appeals to uh, the, the, the Boston Irish gangsters led by Marty Butler, not realizing, as the reader does, this over early in the novel, that Marty but- Butler has very good reasons for jewels not to be found.
0: Oh, you're teasing us with that piece of information, um, Emlyn. Of course, in in his usual form, he he really um, winds the story, doesn't he? He leads us up all sorts of paths. Never up, they're never red herrings, but it's a it's an interesting read.
3: Yeah, my, what I really love about Dennis Lahane is that he really can write a terrific character, and I think he's excelled himself here with with Mary Pat Finney. As I say, she's an unsympathetic character, but it's impossible not to empathise uh, with her plight. But while hers is the main story, this is a very much a multi-layered kind of mm. novel. We're talking about issues like it's an investigation of racism, of class, of cultural identity. There's an awful lot going on here, but Lehane is such a veteran at this stage. He knows how to hone a story down to a fine point. I think you mentioned The Given Day in, the, in, in your mm. short. I think it's his best novel since The Given Day, which has taken us all the way back to 2008, oh, well, believe that's, it
0: or not. That's, that's some um, t- t- a book to top as well. Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane, uh, published by Abacus. Move on to Black River. This is by Nilan Ajana Roy. Um, crime novel set in and around Delhi. This is an unusual setting I think for us, is it? Well, it's uh, Nilan N- 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 Roy,
3: she herself is based in Delhi but actually the novel takes place in a tiny rural village uh, Tita Th- 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 is what it's called and it's, you know, it's it's Far flung from from Delhi, unfortunately, but it starts with the uh, the, the murder of a young girl, an eight year old girl, who's beloved by the village, but she's found murdered beside her father's uh, f- a farm plot, um, and a local itinerant carpenter is is blamed. Now we know from an early stage that the carpenter, whose uh, whose name is uh, Mansoor Khan, he he's Muslim, and this is a largely Hindu area, and he's not he's kind of tolerated the, given the respect due to all madmen as it says in the novel so he's an easy scapegoat but the reader knows that the young girl has seen something that she wasn't supposed to see and this is why she's been murdered so from those kind of seeds that's where Nilanjana and Jana Roy develops a novel
0: that's m- very much about contemporary India. And, and again mm-hmm. even though we're in rural India we're very in a very similar milieu to the first two novels that we spoke about in that we are talking about interracial tensions. Yeah, very much so. Now, the story,
3: as you suggested, it, it does move to Delhi, it moves back. It's, it's got a lot to say about contemporary India. For example, at one stage, one of the journalists investigating the case asks, are India's girls ever safe? Which I think is an actually crucial uh, question in the context of this novel. This is kind of like India in a microcosm. We're talking about, you know, as you suggested, social issues and so forth the scapegoating of Mansour Khan is the kind of spark that results Mm. in a a swiftly escalating violent ethnic cleansing. There's an awful lot going on here Deeply, deeply rich and immersive novel. Kind of one of those kind of sweeping novels that has a lot
0: to say about the contemporary Indian world. All right. Black River, the title of the novel, Nilan Jana Roy, published by Pushkin Vertigo. Um, closer to home now, Olivia Kiernan and The End of Us, a psychological thriller. Um, London GP starts thinking the unthinkable when his new neighbours hatch the perfect insurance fraud murder at a dinner party. I love, I love the sound of this. Best of She's known for her uh, uh, police procedurals. What's she doing here? Is it different from her usual style? It very
3: much is. The, 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 Dub- the Dublin-based procedurals featuring DCS, mm. Frankie Sheehan, which I thought were ter- terrific. This is much more of a psychological thriller in the vein of Patricia Highsmith. That idea of a perfect murder planned at a dinner party. We're straight into Patricia Highsmith uh, territory. Miles Butler is the GP. You reference 's wife. Lana is a psychiatrist and she's used to a certain level of comfort in her life and uh, Miles has made a number of ill-advised investments. He knows that their perfect world is on the verge of, of collapse. So mm. when their new neighbours, Holly and Gabe, start talking about a perfect insurance from murder, Miles thinks, you know, all his birthdays have come, as w- come at once. We know it because it's a crime novel, it's not going to work out uh, as simply as that. There there are, in not so much as in the case with the, the previous three novels, but there is social commentary involved mm. in this. This is a novel about Class and identity, as much as it is uh, about you know the the, the unraveling of Miles and Lana's perfect life. Um, if you are a Patricia Highsmith fan, what? she does for the likes of Tom Ripley in other words gives Mm. us kind of these reprehensible characters and makes us care about them that's exactly in my opinion what Olivia Kiernan has done for Miles Butler in this
0: very hard trick to pull off but she does it very well All right, Olivia Kiernan River Run the publisher's here The End of Us the title of the book Uh, fifth book on your list this evening Declan it kind of brings together lots of the topics that we've been talking about but from a very different angle it's called Yellow Face which might give us a hint of the 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 tone of the piece. Rebecca F. Kwang described this book as, as a satire of racial diversity in the publishing industry. Who is Rebecca F. Gwang having a go at here, do you think? <laughs> well, virtually everyone who thinks that the publishing industry is, you know,
3: capable of self, self-reforming. self uh, Her main character here is is June Hayward, who is best friends in college with a Athena Liu. And now the two women both published novels uh, straight out of college. June's uh, novel is a kind of a popular novel that doesn't do as well as it should. Athena's novel just goes stratospheric she's a
0: real literary she's darling she's a athena. literary darling mm.
3: absolutely and she is beloved and and June tries not to resent it but she does in the first chapter she and athena are having a small party in in athena's house athena chokes to death on a pancake and then june discovers Manuscript to Athena's new novel, um, and this is Mana from Heaven. Dare she steal it? Yes, she dare. Uh, the problem is that it's called The Last Front. It's concerned with the plight of expendable Chinese coolies, quote unquote, drafted into serving the trenches of World War One. And this, then, the title comes into play. Yellowface this forces June by appropriating the novel. She has to. She's yeah, guilty she's of cultural culturally appropriating appropriation it as well, and so
0: forth. Whereas in the case of Athena, she was speaking about her own community. When it was she? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when I read the chokes on a pancake bit, yes, I, I know it's not particularly funny, but there is something about choking on a pancake that has a kind of a, no, a black comic abso- feel No, you're it.
3: absolutely right, Sean. This is darkly subversive. The twist, in theory, is that June takes on a, a manuscript written by someone who is not of her culture. But the mm. twist, twist, is that the Chinese-born Rebecca F. Quang, the, no- the the author of the novel, she employs, quote, brown-eyed, brown-haired June Hayward from Philly as a narrator, she is white bread America who is railing against publishing's belated celebration of diversity as she seeks to defy outdated preconceptions about who can write what, unquote. Rebecca Kwang is having an absolute ball with this. It's savage. Yeah. Anyone who out there who is an aspiring author is warned to stay away from this because it, the picture it depicts of contemporary publishing would absolutely terrify you. But it's satire. But if you
0: like, a, a good, darkly, darkly satirical and absolutely hilarious. All right. Uh, Yellow Face by Rebecca F. Quang, published by the Borough Press. Um, Una Mannion, uh, we spoke to Una Manion earlier in the year on Arena. Tell Me What I Am is the book uh, she you're talking about this evening, published by Favour. Great story here, but a very disturbing family uh, setup.
3: Yeah, very much so. It, it revolves around two women. One is Nessa Garvey, who's the sister of Dina Garvey, who vanished in 2004 in Philadelphia. Now that's 14 years ago in, in the context of the novel but, but Nessa has never really given up hope of a finding uh, Dina or finding out what happened to her and she's always been convinced that, oh. that Dina's husband Lucas who is a controlling violent man was responsible for her disappearance. We also have Ruby who is Nessa's niece Dina's uh, daughter who has been kept separate from her family by Lucas all these years and what's chilling about this and if we think about the title Tell Me What I Am Lucas isn't just a violent and controlling man, he is a man who wants to erase what yeah. women believe themselves to be its uh, you said the word chilling, it's absolutely chilling and what this novel does, it's a literary thriller, it's beautifully written by Una Mannion but what it does is to kind of jacuz against a legal system that will uphold the rights of men who behave in a way that, that Lucas behaves. Um, very important novel, vital, I thought.
0: All right, choose me, give me one more to just to finish up with um, Declan. Are you going to go for... Um, who are you going I'll to go, go for? I'll go
3: with The uh, the Secret Hours by McHurran. McHurran, okay. We've reviewed them once or twice in the past. This is, uh, he, he's the author of the Slough House novels, which are uh, the, the slow horses. These are spies who have been kicked out of MI5 because they're so useless. This is billed as a non slough House novel, and it's a post-Cold War uh, tale set in Berlin. But actually, as we start reading it, if you're a fan, you'll realise that most of the characters are actually versions undercover of the Slough House characters we've come to know and the spies. Jackson Lambs, the spy master in charge, he's there in a guise that you may not recognise at one point Mick Hearn, uh, he, he he talks about the monochrome inquiry which is kind of around which this novel um, mm. revolves. He talks about it being uh, you know trying to drag the sins of a different era out into the light and served off with enough spooked glamour to keep everyone happy. That's a brilliant synopsis of what this right.
0: novel is about. All right. If you're not watching the television uh, on the basis of our TV recommendations last night you might be reading this book on the basis of <laughs> our book recommendations tonight. The Secret Hours by Mick Mick published by Baskerville and that along with White Riot by Joe Thomas Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane Black River by Nilan Adjana Roy The End of Us by Olivia Yellow Yellowface by Rebecca F. Kwang, and Tell Me What I Am by Una Mannion are the recommendations of Declan Burke for this Christmas season. Thanks for that Declan. Happy Christmas Happy New As Year.
3: You, Sean, thank you very much.
0: In the 1950s, two minutes was the perfect duration for a jukebox hit. In the 60s, pop songs could stretch as far as three minutes. Of course, in the 1970s and 80s, we had tracks of epic proportions. Think Bohemian Rhapsody, Stairway to Heaven, American Pie. Now, in the TikTok era, 30 seconds can be enough to make your song a number one hit. Jukebox to TikTok is a new radio documentary which traces how different formats and technologies changed not only the way we consume our music, but also changed the very nature of the music itself. The documentary is presented by Kira King. And among the contributors, Jim Lockhart of Horse Lips. Delighted to have both Kara and Jim with me in studio this evening. And if you care to see us as well as listen to us, you can watch the live stream on RTE.ie forward slash radio, forward slash watch. Live. Um, the jukebox is where it all starts. Kira, this this story that you're telling in the documentary. Something specific about it at at that period in time that that revolutionised, that started a music revolution, was there?
4: Jukeboxes, they became really popular in the US during the Great Depression, actually. So they kind of date back that far because many people couldn't afford to buy albums. Nightclubs Mm. couldn't afford to put on bands and whatnot. So lots of bars and coffee shops and and whatnot. Mm. um, Diners, I suppose, because that's what I think of when I think of jukeboxes. I think of diners in America. Um, got them in and they also helped uh, record companies at the time as well because they had to be very specific about what they were playing but the reason that the songs were so short in a jukebox is that the songs often had to be changed so more songs would be played which meant ah. more money in the jukebox. Yeah,
0: because the jukebox was in a it a, I suppose, a diner for the most part yep. or in, in a place where people, they wanted people to stay.
4: Yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> it. So if you had to wait for your song and if there was loads of songs being played, well, there's more of a chance you'd probably yeah. sit around and have another milkshake.
0: And also if there was a song on that you absolutely hated, <laughs> it was only going to last two minutes. <laughs> exactly. So you could sit through, you could sit through that. You do something really nasty in this documentary oh to poor Dave Fanning and Kate Frenin-Harding. You asked them really hard questions.
4: Yes. Yes, because I think they're two musical experts and I, you know, I think they're up for it. It was good fun. We like to
0: turn the tables and ask Jim Lockhart a hard question now. <laughs> what Jim would you guess was the most listened to jukebox hit ever?
5: Ooh. Um...
0: I'll put you out of your misery Would it, it be d- 50s or It'd, be, it'd fi- be 50s Yeah wouldn't it be 50s Yes it would be 50s Yeah yeah.
5: So Bill Haley No Elvis I don't know I really don't know You
0: do know You said it
5: Elvis
2: You ain't nothing But a hound the
0: 2 minutes and 13 seconds is the duration of Hound Dog from Elvis Presley the most played uh, song on on jukebox and you did you got you got you said it was either Bill Haley or um or or, or Elvis uh, Jim Lockhart but as we were listening to that you were travelling down memory lane which is part of what is doing in the yeah. documentary. There is a nostalgic feel to, to some of these trips. Where were you um, when you, this was your first experience of a jukebox? I Where
5: think was it? so. As far as I can remember I was a kid and my parents used to bring me to the Grafton News and Cartoon Cinema on Grafton Street and right next door there was the Palm Grove ice cream parlour and they had those little jukebox things at your table at your booth which is like straight out of American graffiti and all Mm. those kind of coming of age films and um and that was like America comes to Ireland uh, you know before 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 Kennedy or before yeah. even Grace Kelly or whatever it was, it was there was something kind of magic about it you know it was great Yeah there was a jukebox I have no idea what kind of music it was playing on it I have no memory of that there, No memory of the music no, <laughs> what It was do probably you do? Brenda Lee well, or something uh, Yeah
0: and to be fair you were a kid and yeah. you were interested in the ice cream not, <laughs> not the jukebox yeah, There was a jukebox in an ice cream parlour in Monaghan as well in the 70s and 80s um, a place called Molaccos was an Italian ice cream Cream parlor. Did you have Knickerbocker Glories and Peach Melbourne? I think we might have done. Um, we might have had that type no of No end of the sophistication. <laughs> i tell you. And I'll come back to the, the nasty bits that you have to say about Monaghan oh. in the documentary later on. <laughs> Sorry. Later on, Kira. But it, that, that starting with the jukebox, like how much of a revolution was it? I suppose up until, because it was the, the Great Depression was the start of it all. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, if people wanted to experience music they had to be able to play it on an instrument and they were looking at sheet music was how they were experiencing it to a large extent, unless they had a gramophone, which you, would be very wealthy people.
4: That's what I was just about to say. It was probably gramophones and then, you know, live music and people who could mm. play a musical instrument. And then there was kind of like this sociological phenomenon of the gathering of, um, you know, young adults called teenagers. Mm. And that kind of really drove people into wanting to, to find records to play. And, and it was a whole new scene.
0: And, and well, I was saying there, two minutes and thirteen seconds for the for the Elvis track, and you think, yeah, you know, pop song, three, four minutes maybe at the outside. But you, you were both, you do it in the documentary, and we were talking about the Beatles tracks when we were listening. There are some of their greatest hits. In and around the two-minute mark, Jim.
5: The one, the one that I remembered particularly from just from being around radio was Norwegian Wood, and I just went back and checked on a few of them. Norwegian, they're all just over two minutes. Norwegian Wood was two o two. Eleanor Rigby was two two minutes and three. Blackbird two minutes eighteen. In My Life, 2.23. That was a, a, a long one. Yesterday was two, two minutes and two seconds. Lady Madonna, two minutes, 15 seconds. I mean, like there's such condensed masterpieces. So that was part of the thing that like having a format like a single, a 45 mm. RPM single, even though that gave you slightly more latitude than what preceded at the 78 RPM. Ten
0: inch, yeah. v- revolutions per yeah. minute. Yeah, so yeah. So, so the forty-five, which was the single. Yeah, um, what kind of duration could you put onto that? Because
5: originally it was it was around three minutes, and then that was that was burst uh, in nineteen sixty-four by the Animals with "House of the Rising Sun." Uh, and that was like something like four minutes or a mm. bit over four minutes and that was
0: like a radical revolutionary thing. And did they did they fit it on to the they did. Division? Yeah, they the fit tech- it fit it onto one
5: side of a single, yeah. Now there were kind of there were tricky ways you could do that. I, I remember I'm not too sure how exactly they did it, but I remember one of the things that we had to deal with because, you know, you were you were balancing competing things. Uh, you could make you could make the the duration on an LP longer, but it became quieter. Uh, because the, the the grooves in the vinyl are reflective of what goes on in in the air they're analogous sense analog mm. as opposed to digital they're an analog of what goes on in the vibrations in the air so that like um, you can see if you look at a, if you look at a vinyl record you can see the bits that are loud and the bits that are quiet there's sort of deeper grooves or wider grooves and all that sort of stuff. so by by you can compromise on that you can compromise on on duration by having less volume but then again you want it to sound loud if it's on a jukebox or if it's on a radio yeah. You know, um, you 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 want your you want your track to
0: stand out. And you talk a little bit about this in the documentary as well, Kira You know, the idea of the LP when the LP, the long playing record, came into mm-hmm. into vogue, and when you'd be playing that on air. I don't know about you, but you know, uh, even the thought that you would have to drop the needle into the exact so, groove at the beginning of a track—it's so frightening. I so
4: haven't worked in in radio, I suppose, over the last fifteen years. I guess my experience of radio when I started was pressing a button and the music played because the music was uploaded. But Dave was chatting and. A documentary about how he had to drop the needle. Yeah, and I this blew my mind because you know myself and Dave would have done radio together, and just how far you know even radio playing music on radio has come in terms mm. of that. But he said that he had to find the particular place to drop the needle to start the song, and I just found that fascinating. What they used
5: to do was they they would mute they would mute one deck uh, and get drop the needle down and then manually yeah. roll, roll like, you know, like you'd see somebody scratching, you know, you sort of manually roll it back and you'd, you'd, you'd do it back and forth like wom, 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 until you got the actual beginning the of the note. Yeah. And in fact, before there were DJs here in RTE, there used to be a disc man so that you would have a producer out, uh, out behind the glass. You're in the studio. There'd be a producer out there and there'd be a guy who'd be playing the records. You would read the script and say, and now we will have Elvis Presley and Hound Dog. And somebody
0: would then start it in yeah. wave <laughs> well, and,
5: and the record would be started.
0: Yeah. But the album, uh, d- d- uh, Jim, I suppose, what the album allowed was the the long playing record, which was, the, the, I suppose, the next step up in terms of format. It allowed a kind of a, a big swathe of music to happen on one side of an album where you could fit what? How long would fit on, on one side? 22, 23 minutes? 22,
5: about-ish. Um, but, I mean, there had obviously been records. There had been long play records. Uh, and, in fact, the best vinyl was kept for jazz and uh, classical records. So Miles Davis and Mozart mm. would get the best quality vinyl. And the rubbish recycle stuff would be used for the Smurfs or Jerry and the Pacemakers or whatever. And in those days, um, a pop album was a collection of singles. The early Beatles uh, albums were collections of singles and it just dawned on them in 1966 or 67 that you could actually do something a bit more than this. And then they did Sgt. Pepper, which for all of us, although this is slightly disputed, but for all intents and purposes, the Mm. first real concept album in quotes was Sgt. Pepper's. And um, so a collection of uh, thematically linked uh, songs became a possibility and naturally they were the first people to do it. So by the time we started doing stuff like that, by the time we started thinking of what we could do in terms of a full album in like 1972, um, 73 was the time I think and at that stage um, it had become part of the kind of vocabulary of what was allowable or what was fairly standard mm. thing to do and we were able to Put in place a, a, an extended an extended piece of music, which not only would have individual songs, but would have linking mm. sections, so that you would have one. A big story told big across story three told, or yeah. four
0: tracks yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. on one side. In of a way
5: the, that wouldn't have been a huge surprise to classical people, yeah. but hadn't really kind of percolated that much yeah, into the Yeah, the movements of a symphony.
0: World. You would want the movements of a symphony yeah. to all be on one side, or certainly that yeah, absolutely. you would swap yeah, yeah. over maybe for a longer symphony to the second side. Uh, Book of Invasions. what was the, the, the concept there? Book of Invasions. so the town was was the story of the town yeah. and
5: Cucullin and Maeve and Ferdia and all of that, and the... Uh, the stuff that had come out in Thomas Kinsella's translation a couple of years before only in fact incredibly recently it was only mm. Kinsella's translation i think came out in 68 or 69 and then book of invasions we were going back to the sort of the the creation myth the closest that we have in Ireland to a a celtic creation myth which was the coming of various peoples onto the island of Ireland in prehistoric times in, in which was really a kind of Fabrication, probably by monastic writers in the sort of ninth, tenth, eleventh mm. centuries. Um, so we kind of delved into that, and that that gave us a, an equally kind of broad palette to draw from as the town had a few years before. You know. So who who were the invaders that were troubled with the capital T? That'd be the 2 de Donnan. There we go, my boys. <laughs>
0: well with a capital T live version. I think we were, we were actually From hearing were, it, rather because yeah, yeah. there's a bit of cheering at the top of it. Unless you had a bundle of people in the studio <laughs> that particular day. Jim, uh, Jim Lockhart and Kira King with me in studio this evening talking about a new radio documentary, jukebox to TikTok. And what what it do, what you're doing in the documentary, Kira, is you you look at those different formats, you look at what they allowed. One of the sections that, and I suppose whenever you were listening to music in your teens and the early 20s, it what that format is going to stick out in your mind. There was lots of nostalgia in and around the cassette tape.
4: Absolutely. That was kind of when I first started, uh, when I first kind of discovered music. I grew up in a house with mum and dad. They had a record player. It also had a double cassette uh, cassette tape deck. So I played a lot of their tapes. And then obviously when I you know, was a young, younger teenager, I remember my cousin had recorded two Kylie Minogue songs off the radio, uh, The Locomotion and Especially For You with Jason Donovan. Mm. And I listened to those songs religiously, <laughs> religiously. Um, and there's something about the cassette tape as well. When I'd listen to radio at night time or if I was getting ready for school in the morning and breakfast radio was on, I'd be dashing over to the radio to press yeah. record when I heard my favourite song come on. Obviously, you can't do that anymore. Well, you can do it, but, you know, you probably shouldn't have done it back then is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then obviously it kind of evolved into CDs and then yeah. after CDs it just Were 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 you ever romanced
0: by a mixtape which was a great CD or a great I, cassette number to do?
4: I did get a mixtape when I was in secondary school yes I did and his musical tastes were spot on
0: <laughs> and we won't ask you about his other, his other tastes, uh, Jim. Did, were you ever, ever romanced, or did you romance with a mixtape, or you had your own music to play? I guess I don't think I
5: did, uh, but I remember we do. I I remember when the kids were small, I used to do loads of mixtapes for the car and for holidays mm. and stuff like that, which would be my memory of mixtapes. But it struck me at some point that the cassette, you know, we the the, the album format uh, never kind of carried over. Uh, you know, there wasn't a, a new album format that derived from cassettes. You didn't have a thirty-minute or a sixty-minute yeah. or a ninety-minute album. The the, the forty-five-minute album kind of carried over onto cassettes. But you did have the C one twenty, which was like two hours of music oh, that you could yeah. fit onto it. The Sixty yeah. minutes on which each side. Which was extraordinary. Cassette technology was miraculous mm. because the tape is going by at a speed of one and seven eighth inches per second, uh, which is like. an eighth of what like proper tape would be going at. And they managed to keep it stable and they managed to fit on one eighth eighth inch with tape. They Managed to fit four tracks of music left and right going one direction, left and right going the other direction. I mean, it's yeah. a miraculous feat of miniaturization. And,
0: and obviously, in the documentary, you bring us through eight tracks, you bring us through um, the, the CD arriving on the scene, yes, which the was another, man. yeah, the, and the Disc Man, and things becoming very portable. But of course, you bring us up to the TikTok generation, yes. Yeah, so, you and go the whole all the, way. the whole argument starts in and there, never mind pressing record and play in your kitchen, streaming. And how much money is getting to the artists? This kind of became a a real topic within the discussion on the night.
4: It did. Well, if you think back to Napster, um, when you think back to when Napster was developed, there there was an issue back then with that as well. And then obviously iTunes was launched Mm. and Steve Jobs gave you an online library where you could buy the songs or whatnot. But we're still kind of in murky territory in terms of what money, let's say, is going to the artists that you're listening to on whatever platform you're listening to them Mm. on. There is the upside to it as well because you know, before back in the day, bands would have to go into record companies, or they'd have to go to the yeah. DJ or the broadcaster. Now they can put their their art online, and they can get millions of views. It can launch careers.
0: Yeah, and also as a listener, you can you have access to a phenomenal library if you pay a, a subscription. Now, have you feelings one way or the other on the streaming at it? This I side have of things, Jim? two. I mean, like
5: I'm ambivalent about that. You know, the little kind of pocket that's in the front of your jeans. Yeah. That's supposedly now that's for your Spotify royalties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, (laughs) and um like so from the, from a royalty yeah. point of view it's rubbish but then again what what Napster before it people were just ripping yeah. off MP3s yeah. and building up a, yeah. a hard drive full of MP3s whereas now at least there is a, a system which you yeah. know I mean once it's once it's there it can always be tweaked
0: Alright well listen it, it's a fascinating subject and the documentary um, tells us this story very well indeed Kara King and Jim Lockhart Jukebox to TikTok will be on RT Radio 1 29th of December at 3pm and that is our lot for this evening uh, Liam Murphy and Paul. Shields Research. Demi Garrity was the Broadcast Coordinator. Ashton Grufferty was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Keir Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.